Oof. I feel like my allergies get worse every spring. Well, you might not be wrong about that. As climate change progresses, allergy season basically starts earlier and lasts longer. Cool. Love that for us. And I bet that's the only bad effect of climate change on our health. <laughs> If only that were the case. It turns out there are all sorts of downstream health effects caused by climate change. And a lot of them are much more serious than the seasonal sniffles. When you look at the funding on adaptation under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, less than half of 1% of all of their funding has gone to health. So at the moment, health is in a situation where people are suffering and dying from climate change. And at the same time, the sector doesn't have the human and financial resources to start taking action. Longer allergy season is just the tip of the iceberg, when we also have mental health impacts from flooding and drought, respiratory problems with wildfires, spreading diseases with expanding ranges of mosquitoes, and spikes in deaths caused by heat waves. Okay, well, you're stressing me out, uh, and I had no idea that my complaint about the pollen count was going to lead to this. <laughs> yeah, it turns out there are really complex public health issues caused by climate change that we're just starting to address. Climate change was not considered mainstream, shall we say, in health for most of the time I've been in the field. It wasn't that long ago that I proposed a session on climate change and health at a conference for one of the, the major organizations. And the response was, climate change has got nothing to do with health. Why would we have that at our conference? This is Christy Ebby, a professor at the University of Washington with the Center for Health on the Global Environment. I've been in the field for more than 25 years. A colleague likes to joke that when we first started out, there were so few of us we could have met in a phone booth, which is somewhat of an exaggeration, but not as much of an exaggeration as I would like that to be. So we get to talk to one of the pioneers on this front. Absolutely. She helped found the Center for Health and the Global Environment because she recognized early on that tackling these big issues would take an interdisciplinary approach. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of her work, Don't you think our listeners need to know who we are? I'll start. I'm Ian Martin. And I'm Sadie Witkowski. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, a.k.a. MC. This is the podcast where Ian and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. And for the months of May and June, we'll be narrowing in on the applications of mathematics and statistics to Earth sciences. That's right. This is part of our collaboration with the American Geophysical Union's podcast, Third Pod from the Sun. So if you enjoy this conversation, you should check out the AGU's podcast this Friday. And don't worry, we'll make sure to link to their podcast in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the important work done by the Center for Health in the Global Environment. Important work indeed. But sadly, work that is also chronically underfunded. One of the biggest challenges we face in climate change and health is, until now, the almost complete lack of funding. Every research domain says we don't have enough funding, and I very much appreciate that people listening to this are going to say, well, everybody says that. But the funding really has been absolutely minuscule. At the same time, the research agenda is incredibly broad. 
we need to understand the relationships between literally hundreds of different health outcomes and how temperature, precipitation, our changing weather patterns could affect the magnitude and pattern of those health outcomes. Oh, a complicated topic that affects everyone but doesn't have enough funding. Cool, 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 cool. I mean, almost every research department I know talks about how much more of an impact they can make with additional funding, but it seems to be especially important here. Especially because as the climate changes, so many other downstream things will change too, right? You have to have the basic relationships to be able to do those projections. And those projections need to consider not just climate change, but all the other changes that are going on. Population aging, urbanization, changes in GDP, the kinds of changes we read about every day in our newspapers are going to affect the magnitude and the pattern of climate-sensitive health outcomes. Okay, so what are some of the changes in climate that are affecting our health? (laughs) Well, how much time do you have? But how about we highlight the big ones that Christy mentioned? Since it's finally warming up here in Chicago, let's start with heat. There's a long and growing list of people who are particularly vulnerable to higher temperatures. There is a deep understanding of our physiological responses to higher temperatures. When we get hot, we start experiencing heat stress. We can have heat strain. When you look after a heat wave, about half of the excess deaths are from cardiovascular causes. These are people, for example, who die of a heart attack who would not have had a heart attack. And so anyone over the age of 65 is considered at higher risk. We also have outdoor workers who are exposed to very high temperatures in some of the work that they do. There's only four states in the U.S. that have regulations to protect outdoor workers during the heat. I live in one of those states. And so the state takes action during heat waves to help really protect those outdoor workers. What are the other states? Besides Washington State, it's California, Oregon, and Minnesota. There's some work being done in states like Colorado and Nevada, but nothing's on the books so far. Wow, those definitely aren't the southern states I think of when I think of extreme heat. Right? And that's just problem number one. Problem number two is with climate change, we're seeing more fires and more extreme wildfires out west. Those fires don't just destroy property. For wildfires, there's quite a bit of research developing about the consequences of the exposure to the particulate matter in wildfire. The way most air pollution is measured is by particulate matter. And what we care about is a particle of a particular size. It's called fine particulate matter, or PM2.5. When we inhale it, it is just the right size. It goes deep into our lungs gets attached to our lung tissue, and then ultimately gets absorbed into the body. Thousands of studies show that exposure to high concentrations of particulate matter can lead to higher rates of lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, other kinds of chronic diseases. Oh, wow. So for some people, they might lose their home and then also have to deal with health issues on top of that? But even if your home remains intact, you could still be affected in this super insidious way. It very much feels like a no-win scenario. And on the opposite end of fire risk, we have flooding. Flooding has a range of health impacts associated with it. The one where there's been more research recently is on mental health. 
There are several studies that followed communities after a major flooding event. And usefully, they separated the people in the community to those who were not affected at all, those who lived in a residence that was affected but not actually flooded, so it was disrupted. Floodwaters came to the front door but didn't come into the residence. And people were actually flooded. That particular study has three years of follow-up. And you can imagine immediately after the flooding, the rates of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder went up significantly higher in people who lived in a residence that was affected, less so than a people who lived in a residence that was disrupted, and and a little bit in everybody else because it's a major flooding event. Over the subsequent years of follow-up, the rates of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder declined, but didn't go back to baseline. That these were very significant events for the people who were affected, indicating the mental health consequences are larger and less longer than people may have anticipated. And I'm sure that contending with that extra stress not only takes a toll on your mental health, but also manifests in your physical health. Oh, there are all kinds of connections between the physical and mental health. And let's not forget that drought can affect mental health as well. How can drought harm human health? I mean, besides the obvious of not being able to grow food. Mental health also is an issue with drought. There are studies out of Australia showing that in some of the traditional farming areas where there's been long-term drought, there's higher rates of suicide as farmers lose property that have been in their families for decades and decades. So you can see these rather direct health impacts, but you can also start thinking about these somewhat more indirect health impacts of thinking about farmers losing their livelihoods, of people in flooded areas losing their livelihoods. And that, of course, also has consequences for health. Please tell me we're done. My palms are sweating thinking about all of this. Okay, let me mention just one more. Vector-borne diseases. Like getting malaria from a mosquito bite? Exactly. When you look at vector-borne diseases, there's two separate and related questions. The first is what are temperature precipitation patterns doing in terms of the geographic range, the seasonality, and the number of mosquitoes or ticks? And there's lots of research from the environmental side showing that temperature and precipitation affect all these elements. And so you can model what does a change in climate mean for, for example, the geographic range of the mosquito in the U.S. that can carry dengue fever and Zika virus, chikungunya, and yellow fever. To get to the number of cases, you have to start looking at temperature also affects the replication of the pathogen within the mosquito. And so you need to take into account and not just having a change in the geographic range, but you need to have the right environmental conditions that if the mosquito acquires the pathogen, there is a life cycle within the mosquito for the pathogen, and that is temperature dependent. And so you've got temperature affecting the mosquito in lots of different ways. So, for example, dengue fever is becoming a bigger problem with larger outbreaks because mosquitoes seem to be extending their historical range and sticking around for longer seasons. But it's also hard to be certain because we haven't really done any of the detection and attribution studies that could prove this. Wait, detection and attribution. That sounds familiar. Well, we have talked about it before in a similar context. Oh, I remember. 
with Richard Smith when we talked about hundred-year floods and how we can actually attribute events like that to climate change. In this case, Christy is talking about how we can attribute these health outcomes to climate change. And how does she do that? I'll tell you after this quick break. If you're enjoying this show and learning about the important research, here's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Have you ever wondered who you are but don't know who to ask? Then join Professor Eric Oliver as he poses the nine most essential questions for knowing yourself to some of humanity's wisest and most interesting people. All right. So far, we've gone through a litany of negative impacts of climate change on human health. But we haven't talked about how we know that climate change is to blame. Fair point. Although you sometimes hear this argument made by disingenuous debaters. But let's talk about how we can actually know that there's a link between climate and health. There's a field within climate science called detection and attribution that for 15 years or more has been looking particularly at extreme weather climate events. It's a sophisticated set of statistical tools that does exactly what the name applies. That first, it determines whether there's been a change in a trend. And second, if there has been a change in a trend, to what degree could that be attributable to climate change? And so there's very robust work being done on the climate science about changes in trends in temperature, changes in extreme weather and climate events. Health is just starting to use these kinds of methods. The easiest is, frankly, heat waves. So let's follow the specific example of heat waves. When you look at an event, we'll take the heat dome, actually occurred. I was here, saw it happen. They look in the climate models and they look at the extreme of the climate models to see how frequently the climate models suggested you could have something that extreme. In the case of the heat dome, it was so extreme, it was outside the range of what the climate models had said could happen. And that was a really interesting discussion within the climatology community of our models aren't getting there, it happened. And thinking about what that means for the climate modeling. Wait, where was this heat dome? This was the big 2022 heat dome event in the Pacific Northwest. Remember when all those folks up in Oregon who don't have AC were hitting record highs? Oh, yeah. They were like melting power lines and everything. So it's an example of a climate change event that they could use detection and attribution on to understand if it would have happened without climate change. The Pacific heat dome that occurred a year and a half ago or so here in the Pacific Northwest did have a detection and attribution study done. And the conclusion was the event was virtually impossible without climate change. And once we have that in the health sector, we can then look at the health impacts. Across Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, the current estimate is around 800 excess deaths. These are 800 people who would not have died during that period otherwise. So we can say those are 800 people who died because of climate change. We're still working on the methods on the health sector side, and we've got a couple of publications that um, are under review showing how these methods can be applied to the health sector and moving beyond just the extreme weather and climate events to other concerns, vector-borne diseases, for example. This is a place where there is quite a bit of development going on, and we'll see advances hopefully pretty soon. So it sounds like this is really an area of growing interest. 
to think that Christy jokes that you could contain all the colleagues in a phone booth when they first started developing this area to the growth we're starting to see now. So you think we'll be seeing a lot more stories about new studies in this interdisciplinary field in the future? I think so. But they're going to need more researchers to enter the field and more data to actually make that happen. I've had the privilege of spending quite a lot of time in low and middle income countries. Most of them just don't have the health data you need. We do have temperature records. People have been putting out thermometers, brain gauges for 150 years. There's long records around the weather data. Many countries have just very limited health data. And when they do, they may only collect the data monthly. And you can imagine you can have a whole disease outbreak within a month and have it go away. And so you can't really do the statistical analysis you need to do because you don't have fine enough scale for the health data. Oof. I feel like we're always going to come back to the problem of not enough data. Or not enough fine-grained data. Right. So it makes answering these already complex questions just that much harder. Luckily, it seems like a lot of students and early career researchers are interested and starting to enter the field. When I started the center the first year, I think I have an undergraduate class and a graduate class. Between the two classes, I had maybe 50 students. I think it was less than 50 students. It might have been 40 students. I now have 200. And that's capped because of the room size. It's just very large numbers of students that are signing up. I have waiting lists every year to get into the class because people are so interested in it. And that is an enormous shift and really exciting for the future of having so many people interested in being trained in this area, interested in going not just into academic research, but going into what we call implementation science of working with ministries, with departments, with health organizations to ensure that we can incorporate the science and make sure that we do build the resilience that we desperately need. Well, I guess that's like the one positive thing we can take away from this, if we can call it positive. At least researchers are interested in this work and hopefully the field will continue to grow. Fingers crossed for more intersectional research like this. And maybe someday these researchers can tell me exactly how much I can blame climate change for these awful allergies. (laughs) The real question you want answered. But yeah, Christy wasn't all doom and gloom when she thinks about the future. I tell everybody I'm a worried optimist, that there is lots of very positive change going on, and there's lots of risks that we face. It's fortunate to be in an academic environment because you see the energy and enthusiasm of the students and how much they want to work to make a difference in this space. And that gives me lots of hope for the future, despite the risks that we face. I want to end on a final note from Christy that I think really personifies her outlook on this research and the policy changes that are being made. The story I'm telling everybody these days is I recently went grocery shopping. I'm carrying my groceries back to my car in an underground parking garage. I heard wind chimes and I actually stopped. I was trying to figure out how I could hear wind chimes with all of the concrete in this parking garage. I calculated the distance to the exit. I was thinking of everything outside the exit. 
I just couldn't figure out where the wind chimes were coming from. I finally recognized I did not hear a single internal combustion engine. All I was hearing was electric vehicles. They all have to make a noise at low speed. It's a tinkling noise. They all make different noises at low speed. And when you've got several electric vehicles running, it all sounded like wind chimes. Like that's what it's going to be like to go into an underground parking garage. It's not going to be so noisy. It's not going to be stinky. It's going to be little tinkling noises that sound like wind chimes. As there's even a greater move to electric vehicles. So there's lots of examples of change that's ongoing that's important and is putting us on the right path for reducing our emissions. We have to do it faster. We have to ramp up our efforts, and they're already underway. It's kind of a relief to end a climate change story on a positive note. Even though there's so much work left to be done, the next generation seems really invested in making the necessary changes to protect the environment. And global health. I totally agree. It seems like the work has only just begun, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for a link to Third Pod from the Sun story with Christy Abbey. We'll also link to Christy's talk on their research from the Confronting Global Climate Change program here at MC. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. That's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewitt at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy for his production on the show. And thanks to Katrina Jackson, producer from AGU's Third Pod from the Sun, for their work collecting tape. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. I, I talked with the Nobel Committee. I technically have a beautiful certificate acknowledging my contributions to the IPCC winning the Nobel Peace Prize. most awake I've felt all day. I know, I feel high. Also, I think it's wild that it's like, okay, West Coast liberals and then Minnesota. It's <laughs> like, where did Minnesota? <laughs> the West Coast and Minnesota. <laughs> that was so random. <laughs> Interdisciplinary.
why in my head I heard, how, sh- how do she do? And my brain is <laughs> like, 